And we are back. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, got a special treat for you today. <clears throat> My favorite part of the show, as always, is when we get to the interviews. <clears throat> Especially today. I've been wanting to interview this guy for quite a while. We've discussed this topic a lot on the show. Uh, and he has recently written an outstanding book on the topic. Um, and I think it really, it, it really covers the entire issue uh, and all of the problems that stem from it. And I just, I think it is such a, an important topic of the day. Uh, obviously there's things going on in the world today that might outshine this a little bit, but I think this is going to be an issue that we're dealing with for years, possibly even decades to come. And it's going to have a big impact on our, uh, on our economy. So without further ado, I want to introduce Matt Stoller, the author of Goliath, a hundred year, Matt, let me get the whole title, right? Goliath, a hundred year war, between monopoly and, or, or excuse me, monopoly power and democracy, um, and outstanding read. I, I, I'm enthused. I want to hear the story about how you came into it, but just phenomenal read. Uh, I applaud you. I advise everybody else out to go get a, uh, go get a copy, give it a read. And in addition to being an author, you're also the research, research director at the American Economic Liberties Project, and then you write a newsletter uh, called Big. Uh, focusing on these, well, all these types of topics that, that have to do with, with a lot of what the book is about. But, but I kind of wanted to start from the genesis of this, Matt. What sure. got you, what got you in, what, what pointed you in the direction of the book? What pointed you in the direction of launching? Was there an aha moment where you noticed something in your research that kind of, I don't know, if lit the spark, if you will? Yeah, so I was a... Uh, I, I started working in Congress in late 2008, which was when the bailouts were in full swing. And the orientation, I was working for a member of Congress who was on the Financial Services Committee. And the my orientation was, here's a desk, good luck with the financial crisis. And, uh, and they, you know, they also told me, make sure that you uh, get the, the, when you meet with a bank lobbyist, make sure you get their um, their fundraising information so your your boss can talk to them afterwards. So it was not, an, shall we say, like a particularly intellectually rigorous uh, under, way to understand banking, um, but it was actually really helpful to understand the politics of it. And over the course of the next kind of couple of years, I learned a lot about how uh, banking worked and how banking politics worked. Uh, but there was this puzzle, which was, why did, you know, I'm a Democrat, my, the Democrats were in charge. And I, it's like, why did the Democrats, in response to a, cons a, a problem, a crisis caused by the consolidation of wealth and power, why did they choose as a strategy to further consolidate wealth and power? And this was true not just in the banking system with Dodd-Frank and the billets, but also, you know, with, with the, uh, the ACA, which consolidated the power of providers and health insurance companies and provided a regulatory framework for that, but didn't actually, but consolidated those industries. And then it also is true, the more you look across the economy from airlines to, uh, to big tech, to, to private equity, there was just more consolidation throughout the Obama era. And I, I worked with a lot of people in, in uh, Democrats in Congress and in the administration. And while, you know, there's always some corruption, um, by and large, people just thought they were making the right decision. And 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 most of these uh, choices, and so I was, it was it was kind of a puzzle. I was like, why did we do this? 
what what led us to say, yeah, let's foreclose on everyone and and bail out the banks? Um, what why would you make those kinds of decisions? And that it and it, I didn't believe the argument that it was just a bunch of campaign money because that just did that didn't explain um, all of the the good faith people who just were making terrible decisions. And then a couple of years later, after that, I um, I was reading a book and there was a um, there was. You know, there were the, the people who taught me about finance were were the people who were screaming at the television uh, during the crisis and saying, "No, this is what went wrong. This is what you know." And and they got onto blogs, and there were you know there was a, sort of developed an, a, a network of ex finance people and ex regulators who had seen everything go wrong. Basically, the people who had lost the internal fights uh, about strengthening the regulatory apparatus. And um, and one of them was this economist named Jane Darista. And she worked for, uh, she told me about why everything, you know, went south. And she said, I used to work for this. And she had predicted a lot of the things that were going to happen. And I was shocked because there were all these papers she had written in the 80s and 90s and 2000s about the, what she called the parallel banking system. And, and I said, how did you know all this? And she said, oh, I worked for this guy named Wright Patman in the 60s on the banking committee. And he was kind of the last populist and, and that held the New Deal financial order together. And a few years later, I was reading a book about chain stores and why they had become dominant and how they used to not be dominant because we enforced this anti-monopoly law that we no longer enforce, which is called the Robinson-Patman Act that was passed in 1936 to address the chain store of A&P, which was the, at the time it was very powerful, similar to Walmart or Amazon today. And I said, wait a second, Jane worked for this guy named Wright Patman and Robinson-Patman, that's that same guy. He wrote this law in 1936 and then he um, was the head of the banking committee in the 1960s fighting against um, cons- consolidated finance and on behalf of credit unions and things like that. And I was like, there's a story here of a tradition that I didn't have any understanding of. And it goes through this guy, Wright Patman, who was, the, who was in Congress from 1929 until 1976. And he was overthrown by the Bill Clinton generation of Democrats. So he was a Democrat, but he was overthrown by them. And this is the story of the intellectual collapse of the Democratic Party, um, which, you know, actually explains, you know, the embrace of a consumer well, consumer frame for unders instead of a frame of concentrations of power. And that, you know, really w- w- what happened in the 1970s is that there was this reconceptualization of Americans from citizens to consumers. And that's the story that I uncovered and wrote in 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 Goliath, because I think that's the important story about why we are where we are today. So it goes from the, it basically traces the journey of Wright Patman and then goes, you know, starts before him, starts with, uh, with Teddy Roosevelt and trust busting and why that happened. And, you know, some of the Woodrow Wilson, and then it goes through to the Obama era and, uh, the, the, the end is the rise of big tech, but the, but the meat of the book is about Wright Patman and what he did uh, and the New Dealers, what they did and as a kind of gang fight against the robber barons in the 30s and how they won and then how that, you know, what the economy looked like in the 50s and 60s and then how that fell apart. Um, so that's that's where it came from. It came from and then, you know, I, I wrote it because I wanted to explain how why we handled the financial crisis the way that we did. Um, and I just didn't think that you could explain it in the form of a memo. You had to tell a different history about the country. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. We we talk about this all the time. I think people want 
you know, and, and it's a social media world. People want these one, you know, hit answers and, and you know, being a guy that it, it completely, you know, on my own, I, I didn't study it in school, but just a, an amateur historian, you realize that big sea changes like this, right, they're usually incremental. There's usually build-ups to them. They're, they're, they're not... They're not fit for a social media story. Um, one of the things I, I heard you talk about there is Jane Darista. Um, I am not familiar with her work, or wasn't in, in, until I've heard you talking about it. Um, did she ever talk about Glass-Steagall? When you said that she called a lot of these things that rolled out, I, I wanted to talk specifically about Glass-Steagall and, and see the role that you played in that. Or, or excuse me, see the see the role that you th- the, that you think it played in that scenario. And did she discuss that at all? Was that did did she predict the the, the pullback or the rollback of Glass Steagall? Yes. So she was working on. So the the rollback of Glass Steagall was a gradual change. I think you could go back to the probably the early '60s with the shift in with Regulation Q, and what you know what. So her work is largely on the transition of US, the U.S. and global financial system from a bank-mediated system to a capital markets-mediated system. So most lending in the 50s was done by banks. Most financing was done through banks. And then today, most financing is done through bond markets and, and, and credit instruments. And, and so her, you know, she's an, she's an institutionalist. So there's a, there's a paper she wrote, which I think kind of characterizes how she sees the world, which is called setting an agenda for monetary reform. And she basically makes an argument as to how the the Federal Reserve, which is set up to manage the monetary system in a bank mediated order and like pull on bank reserves uh, and and deal with interest rates, needs to operate in a world where most credit is mediated by um, non-bank financial institutions and through capital markets. So yeah, I mean it, the glass, you know, the changes in Glass-Steagall are, you know, over the the course of you know from the '60s all the way to the to the 2000s. Those are, I think, a key to how she thinks about the world. It, it was just I actually wrote a paper about it in college about the repeal of Glass-Steagall, and it was just fascinating to me. <clears throat> you know, the the original role that that the law played when it was put in place. When it was, and again, I, I understand and, and do not disagree at all that it was a gradual process, but it's just so interesting to me that Glass-Steagall was put in, the, put in place for the largest financial crisis to that point in the history of the country. And within, you know, less than 10 years of it being repealed, we had, you know, we had 2.0, right? Um, it, it, do you think, and I, I'm kind of jumping ahead when I... Uh, do this, and I, I, I want to talk about this part of this uh, subject more. But do you think is there a road forward? Um, one of the things that that I find frustrating is every once in a while you hear a politician talk about you know the monopolistic powers, the duopolies, and the and the oligopolies, and all you know all these different forms of, of monopoly powers. Uh, but there's really not a consistent din or a consistent message coming out of either party really on it um what what do you what do you attribute that to why why has no political party really grabbed onto this is it just the hooks of the monopoly power is just dug too deep into dc i think it's it's not about dc it's actually about the economists so the big shift the big political 
shift. I would actually call it a constitutional shift in the 70s, a sort of a hidden change in power, was that in very important areas of our institutional fabric, we inserted economists as uh, as the people that make policy. So, you know, if you look at the Federal Reserve, for example, it's largely run at this point by, by macroeconomists, which wasn't true um, prior to the 1980s, yeah. right? It was run by a, a, a mix of, you know, bank regulators had a lot more power. And now it's, you know, it's macro people. And even on the, the, the board, you know, there used to be like, there were farmers or business people. And, and now it's largely macro people, right? Macro economists. So that, that's a big deal, right? But it's not just there. So antitrust, antitrust law used to be, you know, it was, it was kind of, um, it was just a business, business disputes. And now um, you need economists in almost every case to be, to say whether something was illegal or not. And that's, um, these are specialists, they're called industrial organizational economists. Um, and, you know, it's true for regulatory policy as well. If you put forward a rule saying you can't dump this thing in that river or you can dump this thing in that river, that uh, rule then goes to a group of economists at something called the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, which is part of the White House. And then a bunch of economists sit down and do a cost benefit analysis of that law, which is basically they put it through their models and then for legislation, if, you know, they, every piece of legislation has to go through the Congressional Budget Office to see what it costs and what the revenues come in. And, and there it's a bunch of economists who sit there and make guesses about what pieces of legislation will cost or not. And they're always wrong, right? Like really wrong. But the point is, is that they, all of these models are politically freighted. So you think about, you know, it used to be that we would make decisions based on sort of what you know, essentially common sense with people in business and, and analysts and, and labor, you know, people in labor unions would, would say, here's what's going on in the world. And, uh, and, you know, military strategists and whatnot. And then gradually what's happened is we've moved to a world where uh, we look for economists to mediate how this thing called the economy works. And that was, that's really the, the you know, the massive shift in, in how we organize our thinking. So what one of the things that you've seen lately is that the Biden administration, you know, you see inflation and there are arguments about why, why is there inflation? Well, one argument is that uh, there are significant supply constraints because we've, you know, created what is a monopoly. A monopoly is a supply constraint that they have a chokehold over something. And so we've said, well, why don't we use antitrust laws and other anti-monopoly laws to blow up these chokeholds on the economy? And economists are saying, are screaming angry about this. They're like, that's absolutely ridiculous. We all know that inflation has nothing to do with monopoly power. By the way, we don't know that. They actually are having pretty severe debates about what's, why there is inflation. Um, but, you know, they, and they look at things like semiconductor uh, production, which is very monopolized because of policy choices. And they think of that as just kind of a random factor that, you know, just that's just how the world is instead of a policy choice that we made in the 1990s. And so that really pollutes the debate. And it also makes it hard for either party to kind of fully grab it because both parties really care about what economists think. So you have Biden out there saying meat packers are dominant and that's why meat prices are going up. And you have, you know, 
some people saying, oh, that there are there's an ocean shipping cartel and they're keeping prices really high. But at the same time, you have a whole bunch of Democratic economists. Basically, the consensus among Democratic leading economists is that inflation has nothing to do with market power and they will undercut um, they will undercut anybody who says otherwise. And on the same thing is true on the Republican side, where, you know, economists are probably even more powerful. And so they were screeching when Trump did his, um, you know, his policies on trade, and they were basically able to subvert any attempts that tr Trump had to move production back to the United States, because they said, oh, you know, this is going to increase costs. And this would be, you know, absolutely outrageous. And, and it's like, we listen to these morons that got us into the, tr the problems that we're in. These are the same people that direct, you know, got rid of Glass-Steagall. They're the same people that got us into NAFTA, that opened up our markets to China, um, that in many cases actually went over and helped create an oligarchy in Russia. This is all what the economists did. And we listened to them as oracles. And so, of you know, people are, are, are we're, you know, of course we're in serious trouble because this is who we keep listening to in, on both sides of the aisle. And I think in general, like reporters and academics and, all, you know, they are, we're all like tied into this ridiculous world where economists are, you know, seeing people perceive them as having some sort of wisdom. Yeah. We, we jokingly refer to them as the modern day shaman, right? They, they wear their cloaks and they, and they you know, they, you know, jostle around the chicken talons in the little pot, and then they tell us what they think, and we all act like it's gospel, and they've probably got the worst yeah. forecasting record of any any economic body on earth. Yeah, um, it's not a it's not a science, right? And that's no. I think the core is is that it's it's a um, economics is a language that is designed for one thing, and some of the economists get things right, sometimes they get things wrong, but that's not the point of economics. The point of economics is to create a language for discussing politics that excludes ordinary people. That's all it is. <laughs> that is a great way to put it. Um, it. And you see that vein kind of feeding through. From One of the things we talk about in the show all the time is we want to take the esoteric uh, um, you know, language out of it. We want to make it digestible to the average person because these are not complicated topics. I think they're complicated by the vernacular uh, like you said, the language surrounding them just to confuse, um, you know, the, the average guy. Um, what, what, one thing I, I, you hit on that I wanted to discuss a little bit more. Um, one thing I thought was really odd about the whole Trump tariff scenario, and I wanted to hear what your thoughts were on it, um, was the central banks, right, the banner that they've been waving literally since the great financial crisis was to regenerate inflation, right, get inflation back up to an acceptable level. Well, you know, you look at the repatriation of, of manufacturing facilities and things from China, moving them back into the United States, not only would it have a positive impact on jobs and wages and things of that sort, but it would also be inflationary. Why the opposition? If you're sitting there telling me for a decade you're trying to generate inflation, then why would you stand in the way of something that is so clearly inflationary and probably inflationary in a good way? Well, I, I mean, I think that, in, you know, in economists, the, the economists despise production, right? I mean, they just dislike it. And they look down on people who work and make things and distribute things. You know, they... They're, you know, they're fundamentally economists are finance oriented. Mm -hmm. 
and they see the world through the lens of money. And they are people who manipulate symbols for a living. And they respect other people who manipulate symbols for a living. This is not always true in economics, but it happens to be true at this in this moment. And I think because of that, you know, they they have this, you know, they're also utopian kind of weird idealists. And the idea of a of um, globalization is that you bring peace to the world through deeper, you know, economic integration. And that's what they really believe. I was sitting in a so I was I worked in the Senate Budget Committee uh, as well as in the House and later on in in the Senate Budget Committee, we technically oversee the Congressional Budget Office, although in reality, the Congressional Budget Office told the senators what to do. But I was sitting in these, in these meetings of the economists who would be, be basically giving advice to the CBO on how to calculate things. And one of the, this guy, Justin Wolfers, who's this um, economist, he's uh, got long blonde hair, and I believe he's like half Australian or something. I, I know him. And he's, he's, um, just intolerable. They're all intolerable, but he's especially <laughs> intolerable. But, you know, he was sitting there and we were talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is this trade agreement that probably wouldn't have that much of a deal. Like it wouldn't have that much of an impact on the on the U.S. one way or the other. It would, might be like we were opposed to it because it, it would be bad for some policy reasons. But it, it's it, we've already gotten rid of most of our tariffs, so it wouldn't have that big of an impact. Anyway, he was, you know, the, this group of economists – were sitting around and they were all telling the CBO how to manipulate their models and that the CBO should manipulate their models to get Congress to pass it. Because they were like, this is a super important and you need to get Congress to do the right thing, which is outrageous because CBO is just supposed to be a neutral agency that's serving Congress, not supposed to be lobbying Congress on behalf of things. But this is what they do. And Justin Wolfers is sitting there saying the TPP, by encouraging global trade, what, we, what it's really for is it could stop war. It could we could find a cure for cancer because of the TPP. We've got to get this through, and I was just sitting there. I was like, "This is crazy. This is like the lunatic stuff that you know." There are these like fever dreams about globalists who are like manipulating our government, and that's like QAnon level stuff. And this right here, this like seems exactly like that, right? Mm -hmm. And 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 so I'm I'm like I'm like these are these are lunatics, right? I had two. There were two economists. And like one of them, they had gotten this argument about the effects of trade and that one of them, they were like, yeah, we see a lot of um, working, you know, people who used to work in manufacturing industries that aren't now because of trade. And one of them kept arguing. He's like, that's might be true. But what I show is that, in fact, those are all people who are the children of the wealthy who have decided not to work anymore because of trade. And it was like, I was like lunatic. I was like, what is, why is this person there? And then I went up to the head of CBO afterwards. I was like, why is this person an advisor to CBO? That like is lunatic idea. And she said, oh, that's just so-and-so. We all know how he is. I'm like, what is wrong with you? This is crazy. Um, like, like that, that's the level of insanity that's going on. And I, so I'm just kind of like, you know, I don't like, you know, people look down on, there's like this common thing in D.C. where they're like, oh, you know, what do the voters know? Um, it's a very – people don't even pay attention. They they couldn't even – they can name the, the you know, famous like quarterbacks, but they can't name who's on the Supreme Court or whatever it is. Like, But, I, you know, the way I look at it, I mean, it's not like people know that much about how the world works, but like elites are just deluded. It's not like elites are any better. They just think they're better. So I'm, I'm when I look at this, I'm just kind of like – 
uh, I've just become much more of a populist because I really I, be I believe not that the public always makes the right decisions, but that the public will always make more legitimate decisions and will probably make better decisions than an insulated technocratic elite. Yeah. Um, OK, so I want to throw you you bent it right toward <laughs> uh, my next two questions. So I, I'll throw them to you simultaneously and you can attack them how you'd like to. But um, first, you mentioned economists bending models. Um, we see that increasingly, right? And, and I've gotten so frustrated to the point of on either side of the aisle, right? The minute we – and here's my frustration is, is for somebody that wants to know the truth, right, that wants to get down to the real – even if that truth conflicts against the dogmatic beliefs that, that may or may not correspond with my political ideology, right? Sitting there saying, hey, you know, the way I look at the world, and I've said this many times, Matt, is that – I feel that the two political, the two party political system has completely failed us. Uh, I don't think that either political party is in a place to fix any of the issues that we're currently facing. Um, and I, I look at this willingness of those elites to bend the rules or out and out break the law or lie to the public because they think they know better. Um, and it and it's maddening to me because it's not just you see it in economics. I think you see it in healthcare. And I'm not some crazy anti-vaxxer. I mean, you know, one of my frustrations through it on both sides of the argument going through the whole COVID thing was um, I'm hearing hyperbole. That's all I'm hearing. What are the facts, right? Let's get back down to what the facts are. But um, and, and so wanted to hear your ideas about what what has happened. Maybe, maybe it's my naivete. Maybe that's always been the case. Maybe power has always done that. But it, to me, it seems like it's proliferated and it's all over the place now. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on why you think that is proliferated. Um, the other one I wanted to talk about is you bring up, you know, John Q. Public. Um, and one of the things, you know, up until this point, you, you start talking about this monopolistic situation that we're talking about and the issues that we currently face. And a lot of it is really complicated. But let's start with a little simple, uh, you know, aim here. Why do you think... And, and again, I can uh, every all of our listeners have heard my opinions on this many times. But why do you think John Q. Public should care about this? What what are, what are the pernicious impacts that we can discuss? Where the guy that's listening to this goes, "Oh, yeah, I have seen that. Oh, that's a product of what he's dis you know of the problems he's discussing." What, what what about these things should John Q. Public out of your mouth, not mine? Why should this matter to them? Well, when you're th thinking about monopoly power and and concentrated financial power, it's just it's all the money and power in the world, right? I mean, it, if mm -hmm. if you care about how we make things or distribute them or, um, you know, or or trade ideas or, or you know behind it, then then you have to under you have to care about market power. So it determines where you can live, what your salary um, or income is whether you can start a business whether you can whether and how you can sell your labor and on what terms or you sell goods and services or ideas whether you can distribute um you know books or or um uh or podcasts or anything like that um you know food right our food systems are what kind of food we can eat whether we can get medicine or use medicine and what kind of medicine we can you know, everything is about all of these things are mediated by how we do business and the rules by which we 
the rules we write to do business. So it's 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 like it's a fundamental. It's not the only aspect of self government, self governance, but it is a fundamental aspect of self governance. Is our our economic liberty, and and I think fundamentally, if you want to live in a democratic society where you have some control over your community, where you can protect your family and your kids, uh, where you can be a free person, then then you need to care about uh, protecting your economic liberty. And I'm not a pessimist. I'm an optimist. I think we are seeing a, a broad rebellion against the um, against the the con- sort of consolidation that we're seeing. Uh, and and it, it is, it's inchoate, but it's there. And and I, there are a lot of people in D.C. who are actually working hard to, to try to address concentrations of power. But to your first point, point about um you know truth right in a in a society like what is why is um why why does everything in our our political environment and our messaging environment feel so chaotic and untrustworthy and i i actually trace a lot of that to consolidation as well so um you know we used to regulate our media systems to be as localized as possible under the premise that you know, the the more you the people know, they can they can understand the truth of what's around them easier than they can halfway around the world. And so we want to, you know, we want to make sure that we enable um, local as much local news as possible, and we also want to encourage civic leadership because you know the 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 process of a society debating and understanding what is true and what is not is a result of um, civic civic leaders who have earned community trust and that community engaging in dialogue through, among other forums, local newspapers and local radio stations and television, you know, whatever medium exists technologically at the time. And what we've done really since the 70s, and you can look at radio, deregulation of radio, you can look at the Telecom Act of 96, um, or, you know, which also included Section 230 of the, you know, that that laid the base basis for big tech firms. You can look at merger policy that enabled um, uh, that enabled um, uh, and, you know, the consolidation of of our media systems. All of it is a result. Uh, all of it created this world in which there are very few civic leaders anymore who are, you know, who can who can actually lead forums and dis- and discussions in an honest and transparent way. Instead, we have these, you know, massive, massive global platforms like TikTok or Facebook or YouTube and these massive um, global advertising networks. It's the same, you know, ones. And and so everybody, you know, what this does, and because we, we, we don't have privacy rules or anything like that, we just gotten rid of our traditional regulatory framework and so it's it the in economic incentives for for people who are in the media are clickbait right it's to produce as much attention grabbing stuff as quickly as possible regardless of whether it's true or not and there's always been a sort of yellow journalism if it lead if it bleeds it leads type of dynamic but there's also always been you know a, an incentive to create trustworthy news and to build advertising around trusted publishers. And that incentive has disappeared because of the way that we've consolidated power over the last 
30 years in media. And I'll just, just to give you a non, um, I mean, podcasting is a market that still works, right? That's why podcasting um, is still a, a, you know, people are finding trusted information through podcasts. And I can explain that if you want. But the, I think the best way to understand it is actually not through the news, but through local, but through music, right? Local music scenes have basically died. And the reason they, not entirely, but they've, but mostly. And the reason is because you used to have local radio DJs, you had local um, places where people could perform. And, um, and as a result, and you had more record labels. And as a result, people could develop in communities, whether it was, you know, um, uh, in, you know, punk in New York or hip hop um, or grunge or whatever. There were these, there were these areas where people could develop and, and develop culture. And then it, it would, you know, become regionally successful and then nationally successful and globally successful. And when you eliminate all of that civic leadership, all of those institutions, like in 96, we got in 96 Telecom Act, Clear Channel immediately bought up all of the radio stations because we lifted all the, you know, all of the, the ownership caps. Well, guess what? Now there are no more local DJs who can put on local artists. It's just like it's top 40. Right. And that's kind of true across the board now with everything. No, that's I, I had really. um and, and you were going to talk about the podcast thing. I, I, I would like you to dig into that because this is a part of it that we have never discussed. I have never thought about that impact, uh, you know, the breakdown of civic society. And I think it's really fascinating that you bring it back there because it, not only does it make total sense, and I could be wrong. I'm just one guy sitting here in, in Seattle, Washington. But um, I think that that's a big problem with our political system as well. Um, I think we'd all better. I think we'd be much better served if politics were much more local. Um, but dig into that podcast thing that you were talking about. I, I, I find it fascinating, and I'd love to hear your your analysis of that. Okay, so if you think about, so I wrote this in my newsletter. This is this is about a couple of years ago. I I was like Spotify is trying to monopolize podcasting, and okay, so I analogize it to. You know, remember in the mid-2000s or before when the web was a kind of open platform and there were lots of news sites and people were trying to make money in lots of different ways. And, um, and then gradually over the, course of the, over the course of the next 15 years, you know, Google and fa- Facebook won. They, could, they bought up, you know, their competitors and then they, they controlled the whole online ad market. And so newspapers died and, you know, Huffington Post or BuzzFeed, all these, you know, publications effectively have no business model anymore. Um, there's a kind of nuclear winter on, on the, for, for text on the web. And, uh, and that's, that's not true for, for podcasts. Podcasts are not that way yet. Um, well, the reason, the reason for that is because Google and Facebook what they they control the distribution of of content they control the advertising the financing of content and in many cases they control the production of content but podcasting and that wasn't true in the mid mid 2000s there was there were there were independent ad networks in the mid 2000s there were lots of ways to distribute your content and there were lots of ways to produce your content um, so you had a three tiered market structure that then got vertically integrated over the next 10 to 15 years um, the uh, the podcasting market looks a lot like the web did in the in the mid two thousands. 
you have um, the ability to produce, anybody can produce a podcast. You can distribute it over open standards to lots of different uh, podcasting apps. So people can, there's lots of ways to distribute it and, uh, and produce it. And then there are independent ad networks where you can finance it if you can get an audience. Um, but what is happening, and so this is, this is an open market system, right? And, and it's a three-tiered market system that's not uh, vertically integrated yet. And there isn't really targeted advertising. Now, what is happening is Spotify and is trying to buy, uh, you know, that tools for producing podcasts and advertising networks and original content because they're attempting to kind of turn the um, podcasting space into a walled garden, kind of like to like like a cable type of system or a Netflix type of system. And you also have other firms like Amazon or Apple. Uh, that are trying to do something similar. Um, and so that's a, I think, a pretty meaningful shift. I was just saying that, that there, what? I said you got to love tech. Is right? that fine? Yep. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's the, I'm, by the way, I'm getting, um, I'm getting like some static on my end. Oh God. I don't You're... know if you're Okay. Now we're running. Go ahead. Okay, so yeah, basically you have a functioning, healthy, open market for podcasts right now. Ideally, the antitrust enforcers would step in and say, no, Spotify, you can't roll it up. Um, and hopefully they'll, you know, they'll get around to that uh, because we allowed the open web to die. Uh, but you can see that when, you know, this is not inevitable, you can have, uh, you can have good markets for, for reasonable, um, you know, for civic leadership and content. Just have to make sure that nobody concentrates too much power. Yeah, there you go. Um, oh, and also the other thing is Spotify's trying to do targeted ads on podcasts, which is annoying. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, but I mean, the, the content, cre- I, I really hope they can't disrupt the, I hope they can't do that with the podcast space. I think it's going to be tough just because there's so many different avenues to disseminate your podcast, right? Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Well... I mean, I, I don't know, Matt. There's so many different things that I thought for sure 10 years ago that I've, uh, you know, that, that I've been swayed with. Um, I, I just, I think one of the things that is so attractive about podcasts in general is the lack of that interference, right? The, 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 there's nobody standing in between the content and the listener. Um, I think that's one of the main draws. And so I think, I sort of think it's, I kind of see Spotify having a magnified a similar problem, but even larger, even more magnified than Twitter, right? It's, it's, uh, you know, again, it's going to be a little bit different, but you know, Twitter to me has been a very valuable platform. I see the value there. They've just been unable to monetize it in any of this, you know, in any way, shape or fashion that, that, you know, Google or, or, or Facebook has been able to monetize it. Google is probably not a good comparison because it's not a social media company, but, um, I, I just I I, I kind of I, I don't know I hope I guess my my hope isn't getting in the getting in the way of that but um, yeah I just I, I don't think they're going to be able to wrangle that one um, wh- one thing I wanted to discuss with you and and, um, and feel free to disagree by all means but um, one of the things that I've looked at on this whole monopoly issue is the extraordinary monetary policy that we've seen over the last. Uh, again, since the financial crisis. Um, 
Do you think that that extraordinary monetary policy has increased this monopolistic uh, issue that we're facing? Um, and, and I'll kind of lay out my, my take on it really quick. Um, I've, and I could be wrong, I am not an economist, but I've always looked at it and I, I personally believe that the higher the cost of capital, uh, that, that, you know, obviously if, if you've got crazy inflation and 20%, you know, interest rates, that doesn't benefit anybody. But I think there's a sweet spot in there with normalized rates. I think that that's sort of the area or the window in which small business can thrive, right? Small business has always been able to compete with larger business due to uh, greater efficiency, um, you know, ideally, right? Taking advantage, you know, being more nimble, um, you know, being more specialized. But, but I think the ability to borrow massed or vast amounts of money uh, at, at virtually zero percent interest rates, I think it's enabled a lot of these corporations to swamp out that ability for smaller businesses uh, to compete. Um, what do you think of that? And, and do you see a role, if any, that extraordinary monetary policy has played in terms of exacerbating this problem? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And exactly what you said. You know, because easy money, it's easy money, but it's not easy money for everyone. Like, if you're a small business, try borrowing money. You, you can't. Um, or it's really hard. Yeah. Whereas if you're a large business, you know, free money for you, right? And the net effect of that, especially since, you know, the CARES Act, which was the pandemic-related um, Federal Reserve bailout, especially when that happened, you know, now you're seeing just this massive merger wave, Um so, you know, and it's, it's, I wrote a piece on this code about, it's called the Kantian effect, but essentially like the closer you are to the center, you know, to the gold mine, right. Or the, the, um, the place where the, the sovereign hands out money, AKA at this point, it's the fed, the, um, the more power you have. And especially when you have. Institu like the institutional fabric is for, for most people connecting to the financial system. This gets back to Jane DeRista. Um, it's, it's much weaker today than it used to be. So we used to have like a plenty of banks and people, most people had reasonable banking relationships. Um, businesses did too. And that's all, a lot of that's fallen apart. And, but of course, you know, Wall Street, the, the, the pipe between Wall Street and the Fed still works great. Right. So when the, when the pandemic hit, it was it took a long time to get money out to ordinary people. The the you know, the paycheck protection program, which is the whatever, six hundred, seven hundred billion dollars of loans to small business, it worked, but it took a while to get out because it had to go through banks and that's kinda creaky and the small business uh, the small business administration. But the Federal Reserve, man, when they when they announced you know what they were doing, like that had instant impacts. And so the, the closer you were, they also said, Oh, private equity, come, come, have fun, right? And so the closer you were to the Fed, you know, the, the, the more ability you had to buy up financial assets. And so you're seeing, you know, this massive merger wave, which consolidates power. So just to give you a stat, you know, we in the 1970s, Congress passed a law called Hart Scott Rodino, which said, if you want to merge and you're a certain size, you want to buy someone else, you have to tell the government about it. And then the government has this process to challenge these mergers. And, um, and they expected about, they were at the time, there were about 150 mergers that hit the certain size threshold for Hart Scott Rodino. These were considered major mergers. So, you know, they said, okay, we're, the, the agencies are going to have to look at 150 meaningful mergers a year. 
that's how much resources that they have to look at those and see whether they're reducing competition. Today, there are 150 meaningful mergers that hit the Hart Scott Redino threshold every two weeks. And and that is that is a, a that is driven by a number of factors, but but a really important one, and that's about double what it was a year ago or two years ago. A really important one is the um, is monetary policy. So I, I think you're, you know, and and when we say monetary policy, people think about like, oh, are they raising or lowering interest rates? But you know, whether the Fed lowers or raises interest rates has no effect on, you know, what somebody with a credit card who's getting has a 30% interest rate or various forms of fees, what they're actually charged for credit or what a small business is, you know, what they, what they can borrow. Um, it, it, so, so, you know, we used to have this more holistic version, vision of what monetary policy meant because we understood, okay, people can borrow low interest. We wanted low interest rates for ordinary people and s- small businesses. For people that do business, we want them to have access to capital and credit. But now when we talk about monetary policy and the, the Fed's extraordinary low interest rates or easy or zero interest rate, we don't mean that anyone can get zero or low interest rates. What we mean is that the powerful can get those kinds of low interest rates and everybody else, they get whatever they can get borrowing from from the, the powerful. So that's, I think, the way that I think about it. But I, I 100% agree with you. I think it's a real problem. Yeah, one of the one of the things that we discussed was coming out of the financial crisis, no eight oh nine. If you wanted to look at economic and monetary policy to completely blow out the wealth gap, right? You you would have done exactly what they did. Now I'm not I'm not asserting yeah. that that was their aim, but you you tighten. It was the, their aim. I well no, it I, was. I mean no. I mean if you so so he just wrote a book called The Lords of Easy Money. And which is about Tom Honig, who asserted what you just asserted. And he, he shows internal debates in the Fed. They, they, were, they knew they would increase inequality. They just thought it was worth it because they thought, oh, okay, well, if we can grow the economy a little bit more, we'll have more jobs for, you know, for poor people. And if the rich get richer, that's okay as long as we can help. You know, they weren't, they weren't like doing it in bad faith necessarily, right. but they, that was their, they knew that would happen. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, well, I mean, it's just really simple, right? So you tighten lending standards. The only people whose credit gets blown up is the working guy that loses his house. So you drop the cost of money to zero. Corporations and the, and the, the, the only people that can step in and take, you know, the only advantage to a recession is lower prices, right? Um, and they effectively took that advantage away. And the, by the time the average guy's balance sheet was healed to the point where he qualified for a home loan again, houses had already gone up another, you know, 40, 50% off the bottom. Um, and it just, you, you watch this continuing to happen and it's just, it's maddening. Um, let me, let me dig a little bit deeper down the monetary, uh, uh, wormhole. And, um, one of the other things you, 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 you made some comments about the proximity to capital, right? Um, that, that, and, and it's, and it's, you know, makes, it's common sense. It makes perfect, perfect rational sense. That you know, business people or whoever is after capital, right? They're going to p- position themselves as, as close to the spigot of capital as they possibly can. Um, do you think that going off of the gold standard in the early '70s? Do you think that plays a role in, in what we're looking at today? As far as to me, that is kind of a uh, again, that was kind of a progression as well. But to me, that was kind of a demarcation point in terms of money being real 
And at that point, the largest source of new capital was really from productivity and innovation. Um, when you, again, this is my take on it, and feel free to disagree, but when you, when you remove that tether, that anchor of any kind, right? Now it's just, it's just paper that, that the Fed can print at will. Um, it, it doesn't shock me at all to see the growth of the lobbying industry um, since the 70s. It makes sense because you, you probably want to spend as much time uh, and, and resources toward research and development as you do lobbying now, right? Um, and we see that with several c- companies on the Hill. I, I, uh, a friend of mine runs a research firm, and he talks about, um, hey, like them or love them, nobody is papering D.C. as well as Tesla is. Um, I, and he said that a year and a half, two years ago. But um, just saying that, that that proximity to power has gotten every bit as important as your tech in, in the actual running of your business. So do you agree or disagree with that statement? And, and if you agree, what role do you think that, that going off of the gold standard, uh, you know, how, how much has it contributed to this issue? And, and kind of where do you put that? So it's a complicated question. Um, so the gold standard isn't any more real than any other standard. Right. The gold standard, you look at, you know, the reason people accepted the gold standard in the 19th century and most of the 20th century is because the sovereign power of Great Britain or the sovereign power of the United States stood behind it, right? So we weren't, uh, we were never, it was never just, oh, cool, this shiny piece of metal represents something real. No, it was just these very productive, powerful economies with lots of men with guns and taxing authorities stood behind it. What happened in 1970 when Nixon, uh, you know, the, the getting off the gold standard was progression. So it first started in the 1930s under under FDR, which is the right thing to do to get off the gold standard. And then 1970, and that was a domestic getting off domestic gold standard, saying that the dollar is you can't really exchange uh, the dollar for gold anymore. Um, and it worked. It took the economy out of the Great Depression or started to. And then in 1970, where the, the, you know, after World War II, you know, the the U.S. had most of the world's gold. And we basically said, we're going to have a dollar standard. And if you ever want to exchange your dollar for gold, you can. But we have so much gold, there's no need to. And who wants to handle this heavy yellow metal? But then as the economy, as as other countries started growing and came back to their pre-war economic Economic uh, activity, the, the share of global uh, GDP that the U.S. had just naturally fell, and so um, you know a gold standard that in which the U.S. always guaranteed, you know, guaranteed that we would convert dollars to gold didn't at a at a fixed rate just wouldn't it wouldn't work. Um, we just just not enough gold when you are constantly expanding the economy, the global economy, and you need more and more dollars. So we had to get off the gold standard. The way, you know, but, but did we have to do it the way that Nixon did? I mean, the, the, what Nixon was doing is he was saying, we are going to get, we are going to end uh, the ability of governments to, to mediate capital flows, which is what we had set up after World War II. It was, we were saying, we're not going to go back to the 1920s where you have all of this hot money flowing all over the world, which ultimately led to the, the uh, collapse in the banking system during the Great Depression. That was a global phenomenon. Uh, We're not going to do that anymore. Uh, We are going to have public institutions, governments, institutions like the IMF and the World Bank controlling those capital flows so things are more stable. And Nixon, what Nixon did in 1970 is he said, we're going to turn this over to Citibank. 
right? We're going to let Citibank and these uh, uh, private financial institutions mediate these capital flows once again. And it was a way of sort of returning back to the 1920s. We could have gotten off of the gold standard in a way that maintained public control of um, of 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 the um, you know of capital flows and credit. We could have moved. This is what John Maynard Keynes wanted to do. We could have moved towards a like a a global unit of account, which he called the Bancor, that would have meant that we wouldn't have had a dollar standard, and so the U.S. we wouldn't have had these big trade deficits. But that would have meant vesting power in um, in international institutions, and there was actually a lot of discussions in the early '70s about how to reform our the global financial architecture so that there wasn't just a dollar standard, which you know ended up deindustrializing the U.S. It gave the U.S. financial system more power, but it deindustrialized us, and we never went there. We we sort of talked about it, but. Um, but that so that I, I don't I think fundamentally it was a real error the way that Nixon took us off the gold standard. But we had to go off the gold standard. It just didn't make any sense to be on the gold standard when there's not enough gold to um, facilitate a growing global economy. What about the argument of there being enough gold that's just valued too cheaply? Well, that's I mean, it, it, that's just another way of saying that that, you know, we can like then it's not really a gold standard right because you're just manipulating the value of gold so you, it's just a unit of account yeah right okay um okay now another one that i've got to get to um is and i will i will fully admit and this was this was one of the topics that i was looking forward to discussing with you the most because i have been all over this when your book came out i was like oh you know hey i gotta get him on uh fascinating topic to me and i think it like i said before i think it's so prescient uh, for where we're at right now and I think it's uh, it's so integral um, but there was a there was an argument for this uh, for monopolistic powers that sort of caught me off guard and it caught me off guard because it, it it made me think and it gave me pause and that was the argument that when it came to discussing antitrust laws being leveled at the big tech companies one of the shots back was Hey, guys, if you do that, you're going to cripple them in the innovation competition that is currently with China. And China is directly and indirectly supporting these companies. So we're not we're not lobbying for the government to start actively backing up their. I mean, they effectively do with QE and everything. But we're, we're not acting for the government to play the same role as China is. But breaking up these companies will make them less competitive. Um, what is your take on that? Yeah, I mean, they've always made this argument. You could find it with Standard Oil, and the you could find it with uh, with Alcoa in the '30s and '40s, with AT and T in the '80s, and IBM in the '70s. You know, the the argument is that this large firm is a national treasure, and if you are going to go in and you are going to restructure it. Uh, then you're going to destroy this national treasure because they want to make it seem like breaking up a company is like going in and smashing all the factories or servers with a hammer, which is absurd. Right. Um, and it gets, but gets to a basic question of where does innovation and national power come from? And are these companies founts of innovation or do they actually restrain innovation? And 
You know, in the 1970s, we brought antitrust suits against the two biggest, most powerful and technologically advanced companies in America, which is AT&T and IBM. At the same time, in France, in Japan, in, in all over Europe, they were being very supportive of their tech companies. Uh, they had national cha- they were the national champions and people were like, what are you doing? You know, in America, we're attacking our companies. Well, as it turns out, uh, our strategy made sense. And so it was in the, in the 1980s and 1990s, it was Silicon Valley that flourished. And, in, and those were a bunch of small companies, right? So the innovation was coming from, uh, was actually coming from the little guy. And when we got the big guys out of the way with either an antitrust suit or a breakup, it opened, you know, it, it allowed them to flourish. And you could see this, you know, in, in, the, in the 1950s, there was, uh, there were, 56, there was an, a suit against AT&T where AT&T had to, divest, had to allow anybody to license its, its patents on a non-discriminatory basis. And one of the patents was this thing called the electronic transistor. And this small company called Motorola licensed it and this small company called Texas Instruments licensed it. And lo and behold, we created the whole, you know, semiconductor industry because of that. And you saw this, you know, RCA was another one and DuPont and a whole bunch of companies where they were restrained from, they had to open up their patent vaults. And this, this opened the door for massive amounts of innovation. You saw it with Standard Oil as well. They were one of their subsidiaries in, in 1900s was Indiana Standard Oil. And they wanted to do this new process, creating this product called gasoline. But New York Standard didn't want that because they were like, no, we're a kerosene company. Well, after it got split up, they, they actually went ahead, developed the process, and it turns out it was a pretty useful process and everybody, you know. So, you know, Alcoa, same thing. Alcoa was like, why would you, you know, aluminum was super important. I go into this in my book. Aluminum is super important with uh, in World War II because it's what goes into air, airplanes, and airplanes were the big new technological weapon at the time. And so you would never want to touch us. We are your big, you know, monopoly crown jewel of aluminum production and there you know a lot of people who were in an adjacent industries were saying like that's not true alcoa is restraining production by retaining this monopoly and so eventually we brought an antitrust suit and then world war ii started and it turns out we couldn't produce enough aluminum because alcoa had been restraining production wouldn't build enough factories and so the government brought an antitrust suit and actually financed competitors to alcoa which forced alcoa to produce more aluminum just to keep up with its competitors. And it had this really good effect on, uh, and eventually we had four aluminum producers and that, that we, we eventually did produce enough aluminum. And you can just see this over and over like AT&T in the eighties, you know, they, and they were withholding innovation from the market. When you broke them up, there was lots of innovation in telecom equipment and, um, you know, and the, the, there were things that came out of it, like the answering machine and like all of this stuff that, that, you know, IBM, same thing. Like when they got an antitrust suit in the, in the 1967 or 69, they unbundled their software from their hardware, which created the commercial software industry. So you just see this over and over and over in almost every industry that, that monopolists are always, they always portray themselves as innovative, but actually they are just, they are financiers who are controlling innovation and, with, and only deploying it uh, when it's good for them. So to me, like as a very clear example, you know, TikTok is a problem because if you're a national security strategist, because it's this global platform, 100 million Americans use it and it's controlled by China and it's pretty opaque. So they can, they can just, 
you can show 100 million Americans whatever they want. And we wouldn't know. And, well, why does TikTok even exist? Well, it exists because we had some some competitors in the social media market. One of them was Vine, which was a similar product to TikTok. It was run by Twitter. And Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg actually was interoperating with Facebook. And Mark Zuckerberg actually shut down APIs to Vine to kill it. And then because Facebook had monopolized social media advertising, it just wasn't worth it for Twitter to pursue Vine anymore because they were getting killed by a monopolist. So they shut it down. Now, a few years later, TikTok, which is run as a Chinese company and has an entire protected market, ByteDance is cross-subsidized because it's in the Chinese market. And they spent a billion dollars of advertising on Facebook to promote TikTok. And Mark Zuckerberg, why would he take this money to promote a rival product? Well, the reason is because he was trying to get into China at the time. So he felt, oh, this will be good for Facebook's attempt to get into China. And so he helps launch TikTok, right? And this is just like a consistent thing that you see where monopolists, you know, fundamentally, it's not going to be our companies that are ever going to protect us. It's going to be our government, our democratic institutions that force companies to do what we need them to do, right? And that can't happen if they're consolidated and powerful because then they will control the government. And that's the situation that we're in right now. So we have to break up these companies. It will create a lot more innovation. There are a ton of engineers at these companies who are really talented and their ideas just can't get out the door because they're, they won't move the needle on a P&L, right? Um, so if we break them up, all of a sudden you're going to see all of this really cool innovation and that will be good for national security, but it will also be good in another way because it will prevent, you know, Apple from dictating what our national security policies are. It will allow us to actually make those discussions democratically. And by the way, Apple keeps transferring technology to China and like nonstop, which is insane. Um, saying, you know, Microsoft is lobbying for Huawei. Right. Like this, this is this is not a good situation. Like these are very dangerous companies. They are dangerous for our national security. Um, but they are also withholding innovation, even if they, you know, seem to spend on, on R&D. Anyway, I, I have very strong feelings about it, but that's kind of my view. No, and it's great to hear you say that because it, it kind of renews my long held belief. And I think it's played out many times is that I think one of the most integral parts of capitalism is I, I don't think you can say you have capitalism without competition. And I think you make an excellent point. Anytime the American entrepreneur or anytime the you know, uh, American economy in general has faced an issue or faced a, a, you know, a competition with a foreign power or a foreign government or foreign company, it's that innovation, it's that freewheeling ability to compete uh, that always brings us, you know, that, that, that always rises us to that level. It's never a consolidation of power, right? Um, and and I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's sort of my interpretation of what you're saying. Is that fair? Yeah, it is. Okay, now, one thing I wanted to hit on real quick in closing, because you've been very kind with your time, and I, I know you get, you're a busy man with a lot of things to do. Um, you mentioned that you're an optimist and I am too. And, um, the reason I'm an optimist is because, uh, for a lot of different reasons, but it, because of this very conversation, um, you mentioned that you were a Democrat. You, I'm assuming you kind of came up on that side of things. Would that be fair to say? Yes. Okay. 
So I came up on the opposite side of that, right? So my grandfather was the coordinator for the Western states of the John Birch Society. So I think that <laughs> one might have described him as to the right of Attila the Hun. Um, <laughs> Uh, but very, but n- not in the not in the way that it's been misconstrued. In terms of, um, we had an extraordinarily ethnic Eisenhower era. was a communist. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Oh, I'm sure he said things like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. But but in the traditional way, you know, we we had a, an incredibly ethnically diverse family. Um, so there was never, you know, I didn't even really realize any racism existed. So it, it was truly, you know, not in the way that the pejorative way of, of, of the media today trying to say that the, everybody on the extreme right is a racist. Um, but, but the reason I'm optimistic is because two guys like us who, who came up on really, you know, diametrically opposed sides of the issue. Um, uh, Matt, I am finding increasingly more in common. Uh, and I'm ca- finding increasingly more guys like you and I who have realized and to put it in my words, the, the political structure itself, the apparatus, the two-party system is broken down. And although you and I may disagree on some things on the periphery, the things that we agree on, I think, are the, are the most foundational things and are the most important things. And they're built on the actual ideals uh, you know, that, that, that made this country great in the, in, in the first place. That's why I'm optimistic. I, I would love to hear why you're optimistic about this. Yeah, I mean... So I do a lot of work with Republicans. I mean, I'm a Democrat, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I, but I talk, you know, I know I have a bunch of conservative friends, and you know, I, I work. I know I, I think it's important to work in both parties. Of course, all Republicans are bad people, and they're all every single one is a racist. So just so you know, it's a hundred percent true. That's right. Um, it's just, just you know, and I think you guys should all be taken off of all social media platforms, which is, I guess, maybe a little inconsistent with what I'm saying, but whatever. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but, it, but, but it works for you, right? It works for me. Yeah, it works right. for me. Basically, I'm a would-be uh, totalitarian dictator. It's really the whole point. It's you like I'm going to come Congress, in with the... Yeah, well, Congress. I would, but I don't believe in elections. Um, <laughs> I, I just want a, I want a military coup is really the point. I like it. Um, I like it. Yeah. No. Um, so, I, you know, I'm an optimist because I, I actually think... Uh, so we've, we've made a lot of progress. So I'm part of the anti-monopoly movement, which is... You know, we were working on it really since the financial crisis when all of a sudden people were like, hey, wait a second. It turns out markets are political institutions um, and there is no such thing as just the private sector or the government. There are there is no free market. There are rules and you can structure those rules in any way you want and um, and consistent with you know physical limits, of course. Um, it ha- but how we do business is how we do justice. Right. Not not. Um, Business is good or bad, right? But there, but how we do business matters, and business is not cheating, right? And we should we should make sure to structure our markets so people who do business succeed and people who cheat don't. And we have blurred those distinctions, I think. And and the Democrats are responsible for blurring those distinctions, and so are the Republicans. But what I think is exciting about this current moment is that you do have. Uh, a, sort of a younger generation, but also like there's a broad rethinking of those assumptions um, of kind of the neoliberal assumptions of trade and regulatory policy and, and just kind of who we are as people, a move away from just this consumer mindset, this consumer framework. And I see it in the Republican Party. I see it in the Democratic Party. I see it in um, in, in the voters. Uh, I see it in commerce. Business people all over are excited about uh, they are, they're now starting to realize, wait a second, 
uh, how this market is set up is not fair. It's not that it's I have to compete in this. No, I actually can go to my to policymakers and ask them to rewrite the rules so that it is fair. And and that that is there's like a revolution going on. It's just not um, it's just not apparent. So we've got great and a great enforcer at the Federal Trade Commission who got appointed. Her name is Lena Khan. And she's 32. She got her start as a reporter after the financial crisis, reporting on all sorts of markets, just talking to business people in everything from airlines to candy and just learning about consolidations of power. And then she her expertise in is, is in how Amazon works. And so Biden put her at the FTC. I'm not a fan of a lot of people in the Biden administration, and some of them are really good. Uh, some of them are not. Lena Khan happens to be really good. Um, Jonathan Cantor is another one. He was put at the head of the antitrust division relatively recently. The other day, he's making a lot of changes, challenging uh, large technology firms and also different types of mergers in creative ways. He just, uh, one of his people just announced that the, um, that the Department of Justice is going to be bringing uh, criminal charges back to monopolization law, which is astonishing. And we haven't brought criminal charges for monopolization since the 1970s. So this is a major, major shift. And it, you know, it's in the Sherman Act. Monopolization is a crime. We just haven't treated it that way. So this is a major, major deal because executives are no longer going to have to just be concerned about, oh, well, I might have to pay some law firm for five years to like make the suit go away. They might, they might face indictments if they're doing some of the things that they're doing. And I think that that's powerful because we need to rewrite, you know, we need the the rule of law for the powerful needs to be more than a suggestion, right? And it, it right now, the powerful think of the rule of law as a suggestion, and so to have people like that in, involved is important. And Lena Khan and Jonathan Cantor were both confirmed with a lot of Republican votes, so the Republicans are on board this somewhat. Um, the Demo- their both parties are split, right? Repu- weirdly, the Democratic party institutions, like they're kind of into the anti-monopoly thing, although the Democratic Party voters are not. Um, They're somewhat, but not that much. Whereas on the Republican side, it's the opposite, where the actual Republican establishment is changing a little bit, but the Republican establishment is really pro-monopoly, like there's still a bunch of libertarians over there. um, And not entirely, like you have some, you know, some of the the new populists are, are worried about consolidations of private power. You see a lot of anger at big tech. The voters, though, the Republican voters just despise monopolies in a way like it's visceral and they understand them and they hate them. They hate them um, in the agriculture space. Like the farmers are outraged and the cattle ranchers are outraged. They hate the, the big tech problem. They hate the way that, you know, there are right to repair restrictions. Like there is this visceral dis, dis, like hatred of monopoly power among Republican voters, it's going to eventually get into the Republican establishment where the policymaking is going on. Like Mitch McConnell may be trying to hold it off right now, but it will eventually overwhelm him because these are elected officials who have to respond to voters. But that's what's going on on the right, which is like pretty interesting and exciting. On the Democratic side, you know, we've made enormous progress. Biden said something that I think you would agree with, which is that capitalism without competition isn't capitalism, you know, it's exploitation. Amen. And that's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Um, so anyway, there we go. Hey, well, Matt, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Again, I, I think the world of the book and the work you're doing um, 
can't recommend you enough. For guys, for our listeners, I, I, again, go on. Uh, I am doing this actually right now. I've got it pulled up. Um, I can't believe I haven't done it up until this point. But go to Matt Stoller, M-A-T-T-S-T-O-L-L-E-R dot substack dot com. Um, you guys need to be up on this stuff. You can also follow him in, on Twitter at, at Matthew Stoller. Um, and then also, guys, the book. It's a great read. Goliath, the 100-year war between monopoly power and democracy. I'm assuming they can do- download that through Amazon, everywhere else, right? That's right. That's All right. right. Well, thanks again, Matt, for having you on. It was a real pleasure. And uh, wish you in the book a ton of success. And um, if you ever want to get the word out on any other books or any other things, that if we can be of service in any way, we're just an email away and would love to have you on again. Hey, thanks so much. Talk to you later. You bet. All right, you guys. Thank you for listening. I hope you all enjoyed it. As always, uh, if, if you, if you want to subscribe, which I think you should, uh, you can find us at knowyourriskradio.com, bulwarkcapitalmanagement.com. Download and subscribe to the podcast. We will be back next week. Got a slate of other great interviews coming up, so you don't want to miss them. Anyway, have a great weekend. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. Opinions expressed in this program are for general information purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Clear Creek Financial Management, a registered investment advisor.